Well, we're starting a new uh, kind of a short series this weekend around uh, the topic of generosity and really building generous hearts and generous lives. The Bible says, freely you have received, freely give. Would you repeat that phrase with me? Freely you have received, freely give. That's really the sermon in a sentence this morning. I guess I could just end there and pray. I think we're all inspired by stories of generosity. I heard this week about one of our missionary families who's been seeking to get back to the field in Cambodia and has needed funds. They, they actually needed $36,000 to be able to, to get there, and they presented that need to a particular couple. And after hearing their story, the couple said, I mean, in effect, pack your bags, you're going. We're going to write a check for that whole amount so you can get there. I thought, wow, praise God for generosity and for generous people. As a pastor, I get to hear a lot of stories about generosity from right here in our own church family. Like the guy who heard that one of his brothers here in the church was walking to work every day and decided that shouldn't happen and went out and bought him a car and gave it to him. Like the couple who felt prompted by the Lord to make room in their hearts and in their home for adopting four international children. We praise God for that. Heard about the family who opened up their home for a single mom, just gave her a place to live. Been living there for quite a while now. Heard about the guy who felt prompted to give a quite large gift to a young family with a broken down van so that they could get their van repaired. And there was a man who, a while back, right here in this aisle, I think, received a gift of $1,000 from somebody else, and it just totally blew him away and astonished him because it met a need that, that he had in his family right then. I like to call that generous living and generous giving. What's behind that kind of selfless generosity, do you think? What motivates that? What what stirs that up in God's people? It's certainly true that the Bible is full of calls from God for his people to be generous, to release their tight grip on their resources and to give to his work and to bless others. Both the Old and the New Testament contain numerous references to this call for generosity. Here's just a sampling. I guess I should have said uh, there's a study guide in your worship folder, and all these are listed out on there if you want to pull that out. Beginning way back in the early parts of the Old Testament, here was a, an offering that was being received to build a place of worship for the Lord. Exodus 35:4. Moses said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded. Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring to the Lord's contribution gold and silver and bronze. As part of the law, we find this in the book of Leviticus. And when you reap the harvest of your land, it was an agricultural society, you shall not reap your field right up to the edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings, that's the scraps, the leftovers after your harvest, You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner, for I am the Lord your God. So be generous, take care of the poor and the needy among you. The book of Psalms, it says, The wicked borrows but does not pay back, but the righteous is generous and gives. Proverbs 11.25, A generous man will prosper, and he who refreshes others will himself be refreshed. And then the words of Jesus that we spoke earlier, Freely you have received, freely give. 
This kind of generosity is pictured in the the life of the early church back in the first century. It's described this way in Acts 4. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. There were no needy persons among them, for from time to time those who owned lands or houses sold them and brought the money from the sale and put it all at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Imagine being part of a community like that. In Acts 20, Peter, or Paul reminded the, the Ephesian elders the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, who said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Paul instructed the church at Corinth, 2 Corinthians 8, just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. And then in chapter 9, he wrote this, each, mu- each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, not because you have to, for God loves a, what, cheerful giver. In the original language, that word cheerful is actually the word for hilarious. God loves a hilarious giver. Galatians 6.10, therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people especially those who belong to the family of believers. In 1 Timothy 6.17, As for the rich in this present age, that's us, by the way, globally speaking, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. God's people are called to be generous. They always have been. Why? Why is that? Why that call? Well, certainly it's in order to reflect the glory and the nature and the character of our generous God, right? For God so loved the world that He what? He gave His only begotten Son. Ephesians 5 tells us that Jesus loved the church and gave Himself up for her. So this generosity runs in the family of God. I think we can say without any doubt or equivocation that generosity is biblical, it's Christian, it's good and godly and commendable in the sight of God. But you know, during the last few years, the Lord has been doing a work in my life. He's been recentering me around the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and showing me how the gospel affects and connects to every area of life and fuels every area of life. And so in these days, I've become more interested in the why of generosity, in the heart behind it. What, what fuels Christian generosity? And recently I was thinking about all the various motivations that people have for giving and all the incentives that pastors and others use to try to get people to give and be generous. And I made a list. There are many motivations for giving, some good, some not so noble maybe. Some people give out of fear, don't they? Fear. Man, if I don't give, God's going to get it somehow from me. He's going to take it out of my hide, so I guess I better give. Some people give out of fear. Others give out of guilt. They feel like, man, you know, when I don't give, my conscience bothers me. I feel guilty, and so, okay, I'll give. I don't like to feel bad like that. Many have been taught obedience, and so they give because they've been taught, I'm supposed to give. That's what God commands. That's what good Christians do. So I give out of duty because I'm supposed to. 
Some people give because they want to increase their faith. They've been taught that if they'll give their resources away, God will stretch their faith and grow their faith by his ability to supply their needs. So they give for that reason. Some give out of altruism. They, they, they know there are a lot of needs out there and they like how they feel. They like how it feels when they give to meet the needs of other people. Some people give to vision. They think, you know what, I, I give to a big vision. So give me a visionary leader who paints a, a compelling picture of what the future could be like, and I'll give to that. Or if, if, if that person, that leader, pulls on my heartstrings enough, then, then, then I'll give. I give to vision. Some people give out of joy. They just give because they love the joy they get from giving to others. Uh, many Christians have been taught stewardship, and they give out of that motivation. They realize that everything that they have has been entrusted to them by God and that they're going to have to give an account one day for how they managed it. So they give knowing that's what good stewards do. And because their master is going to come one day and ask for an account, they want him to be pleased. Some people give out of a sense of being in covenant with a community of believers and they feel responsibility for the well-being of those that they're in covenant with, the congregation the church, and so they give to preserve the health of the, of the community, the covenant community. Some people are motivated to give because they know they're going to get back. Give and it shall be given unto you. And so there are people, that's their motivation. They found that when they give, it comes back to them. There's that law of sowing and reaping, and they want to put that into effect in their lives. So they give in order to get a present return. Some people give out of gratefulness. They, they just realize, I've been given so much, I want to give back. Some people give out of love. Some give out of a motive of desiring future reward. Lay up for yourselves treasures where? In heaven. And they know that heavenly investments pay the best dividends over the course of eternity. So they give for that motivation of future reward. And there are others. I wonder, what, what are your motivations today for giving? Maybe circle a few of those there on your outline that, that seem to resonate with you. Don't worry, I'm not going to come back and say, you know, you're bad for giving out of that motive. Just where are you at? What motivates you to be generous? And then I want to ask, does motivation even matter? Does it, does it matter why we give or does it only matter that we give? And then beyond that, what, what is God really after? Well, let's be honest today. This topic of generosity and giving uh, makes some of us cringe, doesn't it? Especially when it comes up in church. In fact, we almost named this series Cringe. <laughs> Just knowing that that's so many people's response to uh, the topic of money and how we handle our money. It's interesting to be a, up here and watch people's faces and movements once they realize that we're talking about money. Some people start getting a little uncomfortable and start shifting around in their seat and fidgeting and poking around in their purse. Others have all of a sudden the strongest urge to get up and go use the restroom or get a snack or take a smoke break or go check the weather or anything to get out of here because maybe you feel uncomfortable. Maybe this is your first time here or maybe you've only been around for a few weeks and you might be thinking, okay, here it comes, the money talk. This is where the pastor puts the screws to us 
and won't let us get out of here until our wallets are completely empty. Actually, I did hear about a church that uh, actually, during the offering, locked the doors and passed the, the plates continuously and kept passing them until the ushers felt like enough money had been collected. <laughs> but you can relax. We're not going to do any of that this morning. Here's, here's what I'm going for in this series. What does the Bible really teach about our motives for giving, for being generous? And how does being centered in the gospel of Jesus Christ affect or impact our level of generosity? That's what I'm going for. As we saw earlier, there is a clear call in the Bible for God's people to be generous. I don't know about you, but what's in my heart these days is to align my heart with God's heart. I want to I know what God's plan is for my generosity and line up with that plan. And I want to know from the Scripture how that plan is unfolded in the Bible, in biblical history. And so in our time that remains, what I'd like to do is is kind of do a flying overview of God's plan for giving in the Bible, okay? And we're going to look at three distinct eras or um, periods in biblical history and see how the Lord called His people to give, to be generous, in each of those three eras. And I think that what we're going to discover might surprise some of us. So we'll see. And here are the three periods I want us to look at. From Adam to Moses, what was God's plan for giving from Adam to Moses? And then from Moses to Jesus, and then from Jesus till this moment, till now, till the present, okay? So Adam to Moses, pre-law, before the law was ever given, and then Moses to Jesus during that period when the law was given to Israel, and then... Now, during this era, the era of the New Testament or the New Covenant. What we're going to see is that in each era, there have basically been two kinds of giving, two categories of giving, mandatory giving and voluntary giving. So that which was required, mandated, not optional, that God called his people to, and then voluntary giving or what's sometimes called free will Giving. Let's see how these played out in each era, okay? Let's think first about that period of time from Adam to Moses, which would be recorded in what book of the Bible? Genesis, yeah, the very first book. And let's, let's look, look at voluntary giving first, free will giving in the book of Genesis. And what we find in that book is the record of numerous offerings being brought to the Lord by many different people, but all of them appear to be voluntary, not mandated. Not required. For example, remember Cain and Abel, right? These two brothers, and they each brought offerings to the Lord. You might recall the story. Cain's offering came from his field, from his garden. Abel brought an offering from his flock, an animal sacrifice. It's interesting, there's no mention of a specific command to do this. It appears to be voluntary. Apparently, God had revealed something about what kind of offering would be acceptable to him and whose was accepted, by the way. Abel's offering, the animal sacrifice, the blood sacrifice was the one that was accepted by God. And, of course, that pointed to a future sacrifice that would come one day and pay for our sins. So pointed to way back in the book of Genesis. But again, this appears to be a voluntary offering, not something that was required. Then you read further and you come to Noah. Noah of Noah and the ark fame. And do you recall what the first thing Noah did after the floodwaters receded and he came out of the ark? He gave an offering. He built an altar and presented 
an offering, a burnt animal sacrifice to the Lord. But again, no specific command is recorded in Scripture. It's not like God said, you must do this. It appears to have come from his heart out of gratefulness for God's preserving grace. And you read further and you come to this man named Abram. Later his name would be Abraham. But in Genesis 12 and 13, his his name was still Abram. And of course, he received a great promise from God, didn't he? That his descendants would be multiplied and they would become a great nation. And eventually God would give them a land of their own, the land of Canaan. And Abraham heard that and he responded by giving an offering to the Lord, a sacrifice, worshiping the Lord, presumably, as I said, with animal offerings. And again, there's no command given by God. It appears to be voluntary, something he did out of a desire to honor God and express his gratefulness for this amazing plan. Then in Genesis 14, we find Abram again in the first mention of tithing in the Bible, Genesis chapter 14. And the setting was this, Abraham was coming back from a a military victory, a battle that he had won, and, and he was bringing with him all the spoils from that battle taken from the defeated enemy. And it records in Genesis 14 that he met someone on the way back home, the king of Jerusalem, whose name was, you know what it is? Melchizedek, a very intriguing figure in the Bible. He's called the king of Jerusalem. He's called a priest of the Almighty God. Some scholars believe he was actually Jesus Christ in the flesh, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus on the earth. I'm not sure about that. But it says that when Abram met him, he gave him a tithe. He gave him, gave him a tenth. That's what tithe means, 10%. He gave him a tenth of all the spoils from the military victory. Again, there's no record that this was commanded by God. It appears rather to be a cultural practice of that day, a common custom among kings and rulers, a way of showing honor. So it appears to be a voluntary act. And it was a one-time thing for Abram, this tithe. Then you read on to Genesis, you come to Jacob. Jacob. Jacob the conniver. Jacob the deceiver, Jacob the guy who was always angling for an advantage with people and with God. And in Genesis 28, it's recorded that he appears to be trying to bribe God by offering to give God a tithe if God will protect him. You ever done that? God, protect us, keep me safe, and I'll do this, I'll give this to you. Well, that's what Jacob was doing. And this is the the second mention of tithing in the book of Genesis and in the Bible, and the the last one in Genesis. And again, it appears to be voluntary. There was no command by God. In fact, it was an attempt to bribe God for his protection. So voluntary giving in Genesis. The only required giving, the only mandatory giving found in the book of Genesis appears to be in chapter 41 where Joseph, who was a ruler in Egypt at the time, required that the people give 20% of their resources to the government to fund national concerns. We would call that what? A tax. Yeah, that's what it was, a form of taxation. It was not optional, but it was required of all citizens. So from Adam to Moses, you have the record of voluntary giving and this instance of required giving. How about from Moses to Jesus? What do we see there? Well, after Genesis, the Old Testament traces the unfolding history of who? Abraham's descendants, the Jews, the children of Israel. And so we know the Jews were God's chosen people. We know that the Messiah would eventually come 
from that nation. And so from the time of Moses up until the time that Jesus appeared on the scene, instructions about offerings and giving and generosity were all given to the Jews. So what do we see there? Well, we do see some required giving. A lot of it, actually. Mandatory giving. First thing we see is what is called the Levite tithe. The Israelites were commanded to bring a tenth, a tithe, 10% of all of their crops every year to the place of worship to support the priests and their families. Now, Israel's form of government in that era was unique. It was called a theocracy. That's what we would call it, a theocracy. Who was the ruler? Who was the king? God. God was the king of Israel. And God had designated that there would be priests in the land who would mediate between the people and, and God and God wanted them to be supported by the people, so he mandated a tithe from the children of Israel, 10%, a mandatory offering to provide for the families of the priests. They lived off of what was given. So that was 10% of a Jewish family's income, but there was an additional tithe on top of that. It was called the festival tithe. So in addition to the Levite tithe, the people were to take another tenth of their crops and their flocks, and once a year... Bring them, bring their tithe to the capital city, Jerusalem, for a huge national potluck, a feast. Imagine an executive order given by our president establishing an annual potluck on the mall in Washington, D.C., where everyone in the country would load up their vans and SUVs with ice chests full of food enough to feed lots of people for many, many days. And bands are brought in and picnic blankets are laid out on the mall as far as you can see in every direction. And everybody in the whole country shows up and parties for a few days. That's what was mandated here, a national festival with eating and feasting and dancing that lasted for days. It celebrated God's deliverance of his people. It celebrated God's goodness. And everybody was commanded to bring a tithe of their resources in order to fund the whole thing, to have food to eat. So basically, this was a form of taxation as well. This was not optional. So now a Jewish family was giving what percentage? 20%, a tithe on top of a tithe. And these were required taxes. And then there was another contribution that was required of them. This is called the poor tithe recorded in Deuteronomy 14. And every three years, they were to give another tithe that was meant to feed the poor and the orphans and the widows and the foreigners among them. So this was basically a welfare program, God's welfare program for the poor and the needy who lived in the land. And that was to be given every three years. So now if you add this all up, basically a Jewish family was required to give 23.5%. 3333% of their income every year to basically fund the nation. You say, was that all the required giving? No, there was more. Every seven years, the Jewish family was required by God to write off any and all debts that were owed to them, just free and clear. The debtors release. And when they harvested their crops every year, as we read earlier, they were to leave some scraps for the needy and the stranger kind of like a profit-sharing plan for the nation. And every seven years, they were required to let their fields and vineyards and olive groves rest and not plant or harvest them that year. So 
You could plant and harvest for six years, then you were supposed to let your fields rest. And that meant a year's earnings were forfeited. So storing up for that year was very, very important. So all of that was required, mandatory giving for a Jewish family living during that era, during the theocracy in the nation of Israel. You say, well, was there any voluntary giving on top of all that? Yes. There was what is called first fruits giving. Maybe you've heard that term before, first fruits. We don't live in an agrarian society like they did. It was a very common concept back then. And basically, that was this. At harvest time, when the very first crops would start to emerge in your field, the farmer would pick those crops and bring the first fruits into the storehouse, into the place of worship, and that also would help to support the priesthood of that day. Now, this wasn't voluntary in the sense that you could opt out, but it was voluntary in in the amounts. No percentage was mandated or dictated to them. This was essentially a faith gift because the farmer hadn't yet harvested his entire crop and didn't necessarily know how much was going to come in. But he would give the first fruits to the Lord. And so by faith, he would trust God to supply for the rest of his needs for his family for the year. And God promised to bless that kind of faith. Above that, there were free will offerings that were taken from time to time. These were voluntary offerings, and they helped build houses of worship. First, the tabernacle, that roving, mobile worship center that traveled with the children of Israel throughout the wilderness. That was constructed through free will offerings, and later the permanent worship temple in the land of Israel. These were voluntary. People were encouraged to give whatever was in their hearts to give, willingly, generously, and they did. The Bible records that they had much more than enough for the construction of these worship facilities. So from Moses to Christ now, there was both required giving, which was basically taxation at the rate of 23 and a third percent annually, and then there were voluntary offerings that were... um, encouraged above that, and the people were to give whatever amount they decided in their heart to give, whatever they wanted to give. Well, how about this third period, from Jesus to the present? That's the one we're mostly concerned about, right? Because that's the period we live in, from Jesus till now. Is there required giving in the New Testament? And the answer is yes, paying your taxes, And all the people of God groaned collectively. We must pay our taxes? Yes, yes. That's the mandatory giving that we see in the New Testament. Both Jesus and Paul advocated the paying of our taxes to the government. You know, during the time of Jesus, the Jews still referred to this as the tithe because in the Old Testament, the tithe was actually a tax. During Jesus' time, the temple treasury there had 13 trumpet-shaped receptacles for Jews to come and drop off their tithes, their tax payments, to fund what remained of the Jewish theocracy at that time. So there were Jewish taxes, and then, you know, the nation of Israel was under Roman rule, and the Romans added their taxes on top of the Jewish taxes. So here's a question. Did Jesus pay taxes? Answer, yes, he did. He did. Although he was the king of kings and lord of lords and the son of God and knew he should probably be exempted from 
paying taxes to earthly authorities. He went ahead and he paid taxes, didn't he? Where did he get his tax money from? From the mouth of a fish. You can read about it. That's in the Bible. He said, Peter, go fishing. Take that first fish out of your net, open his mouth, you'll find a coin in there, and go pay our taxes with that. Now, don't you try that. That's not a reliable source for your tax payments. But Jesus was the Son of God. Remember once Jesus' detractors tried to trap him by bringing up the tax issue? Jesus had detractors, you know, who were trying to make him look foolish in front of the people, and they would ask him these questions to try to stump him and make him look bad, and so they brought to him a, uh, a question once. Jesus, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And it was one of those you know, conundrums. He could, anything he said was going to offend somebody. So Jesus asked for a coin had Caesar's inscription on it, and he said, what? Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and render unto God the things that are God's. And nobody knew what to say. (laughs) And so he advocated paying taxes to the government. He told the proud Pharisees in Matthew 23 that they should pay their taxes, their tithes. That was a good thing, but they should not neglect the weightier matters of the law. And later, Paul would write the church at Rome and tell them, the believers there, if you owe taxes, pay taxes. Now, some of you might be a little confused at this point. Maybe you've thought or been taught that in this era, tithing was a mandatory, required percentage of 10% that God mandates that you give to your church. You need to know that that notion is not really supported in the New Testament. I will admit that many churches, us included, have used this term tithe to refer to the regular ongoing giving of God's people to the church, but technically that's not the biblically accurate term to use for that kind of giving. It's not used that way in the New Testament. As we saw, the tithe in the Old Testament was actually a required form of tax meant to support the government. So the equivalent of that in our era would be paying our taxes. Maybe you're thinking, but doesn't God require me? Mandate that I give 10% of my paycheck to the church? Isn't that in the New Testament? Well, no. Not really. It's not bad to give a tithe of your income to God, but we don't find that specifically there. The only mandatory giving in the New Covenant is to pay our taxes. Our giving to God's work through His church is completely voluntary. It's voluntary. No amount or even percentage is specified in the New Testament. A better term for this voluntary giving to the church is probably grace giving. That's the biblical term, grace-motivated giving. So let's talk about that for a moment, this voluntary giving here in this New Covenant era. Now listen, the New Testament is very clear that believers in Jesus Christ in this era are no longer under law, but we are under grace. Romans 6.14, Paul wrote, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. The law is not the ruling principle in our lives as believers here in this new covenant era. In Galatians 5.18 it says, But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Who did that for us? Jesus Christ, that's right. 
the demands and requirements of the Old Testament ceremonial law were fulfilled by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and they were fulfilled for us on our behalf. So now when it comes to generosity and giving, what we find over and over and over in the New Testament is the call for believers to give not based on law, you'd better give, but based on gratefulness for God's grace in our lives. Now, there are many other reasons to give too, but they all flow out of this primary motivation for giving gratefulness. Freely you have received, freely give. We'll talk about this more over the course of the next couple of weekends, but we need to understand today that New Testament giving to God's work is not a matter of adhering to some old covenant standard and in doing so feel good about ourselves or feel like accepted by God. Instead, it's a matter of seeing God as our master and money as our servant, acknowledging that it all comes from him and that he owns all of it and figuring out how much we can joyfully and gratefully give away to bless God's people and advance God's work. Listen, listen, legalism is out, grace is in. Legalism is out, grace is in. Twelve people are excited about that. (laughs) This is a good thing. We are not under the law. It may be shocking to some of you. The new covenant question is not, how much am I supposed to give in order to be a good Christian? The new covenant question is, how much does my heart want to give in response to how much I've received from the hand of Jesus Christ? Totally different. Freely you have received, freely give. You know, sometimes pastors struggle with how to go about making appeals for God's people to give. I admit I'm struggling a little bit with it right now. There are needs in this body of believers these days. You need to know that. Giving to the budget of this church is not sexy giving, as one of our elders said recently. (laughs) It's that regular, though, ongoing, generous, non-sexy giving of God's people that sustains the ministry here, pays for the building we meet in, keeps the lights on, supports all of our staff, supports all of our missionaries, and enables our gospel work to go forward week in, week out. It's very, very important. But as I've prayed through all the various incentives I could use to try and motivate you to be generous and give, I've come to realize the primary biblical new covenant motivation is this. Freely you have received, freely give. We have received so much through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We could make a list, couldn't we? Forgiveness of our sins, pardon, justification by faith, the righteousness of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, the Bible, the church, access into the throne room of God in prayer, joy, peace with God, love. We've received so much. And he's promised so much more that we haven't received yet, but it's coming. A home in heaven, a new body, eternal health, 
and gladness in the presence of God, an inheritance, a kingdom. It's all coming to us. We have received so much from the hand of God. How could we not give generously, willingly, voluntarily, sacrificially to his work in response of gratefulness? How could we not? Freely we have received. Freely we should give. We should give. Well, we're going to explore this more next weekend, but I want to finish out this morning with a story of my first brush with grace-prompted generosity. I keep a KFC bucket in my office. Some of you have been in my office and asked, why is that there? <laughs> um, I've told this story before, but it's been a few years, and it, it was really my first encounter with joyful, grace-filled generosity. I was a sophomore in high school, or in college, actually, and uh, it's Christmas break, and I'd worked over Christmas break, worked hard, and I earned the grand sum over that month of $400, which seemed like a lot to me, and I had plans for that money. Came back for the winter-spring semester, and we had a, a kid in our dorm, dorm 18, there at Liberty University. His name was Dana Pope. He was a fiery Red-headed guy with a passion for Jesus Christ, studying to be a pastor. And he came back in January, came back to school on faith. He kind of confided in me once the semester had started that he didn't have any money. Now, business offices at universities tend to frown on that. Back in the day, they, they would allow a student to stay for a couple of weeks and just see what God might do. And he let me know what was going on with him. And I remember... Um, about a week went by and he said, you know what, the business office has told me now that by Friday I need to have a payment of $765 if I want to stay in school. That night, it was a Monday night, I think, I was showering there in the dorm and while I was showering, God spoke to me. I heard his voice. Not audibly, but I heard it. And he said, I want Dana here. I'm training him for ministry and I want you to give 100 bucks from your Christmas break earnings. And I'm like, 100 bucks? I got plans for that. God impressed that on me very clearly. That's what he wanted me to do. So I toweled off, went back to my room, took $100 in cash. I found a KFC bucket in the room that was laying around, dropped it in there. And I thought, you know, I think this thought was from the Lord. Go take an offering in the dorm. 24 rooms, four students, four guys in each room. Lord was in it. I started walking around, knocking on doors. Hey, guys, you guys know Dana. He's come back on faith. He's got to have a payment by this Friday. Let's, let's do what we can do. And uh, what was neat is that, you know, college students have no money. <laughs> they are poor, desperately poor. So they're pulling out coins, throwing in quarters and nickels and dimes. Every once in a while, a, a buck or two. I remember one guy threw a $50 bill in, and we're all like, wow, we've never seen a $50 bill before. That's cool. And the neat thing about it was that guys joined me as I went. They caught the joy and the excitement of this. And so by the time we got all, all the way through the dorm, at the end, the guy would open the door, and here's 10 guys standing there. Like, you know, hey, we've got to keep this guy in school. Come on, cough it up. And they poured all this money in, and we all went back to my room, and threw it all out on the ground, and we're sorting through counting nickels and dimes and dollars and one $50 bill and added it all up, and it was 800 bucks. And I thought, man, this is cool. So we concocted this little plan. We wanted to befuddle him a little bit. We knew there was a hall meeting coming up on Thursday night. He had to have the payment by Friday. So we went out and got a money order for the 800 bucks. Hall meeting comes around Thursday night. Hall meeting! All the guys come out into the hall. 
And we go through this charade. Well, we all know that our brother Dana came back on faith for this semester, hoping that God would supply. Now, we don't understand the whys and the hows of why God does what he does, but apparently it's not God's will for him to stay here. So, Dana, come on up. We got this card here. We want to pray for you. So he opens this card up, pulls out this money order, just bursts into tears. And I went back to my room after the hall meeting that night, and I thought, this is good. I like how this feels. <laughs> the joy of generosity that got stirred up by what God was doing in my life and the voice of God, it was a beautiful thing. I've never forgotten that. I keep this in my office to remind me how that felt to give and be a catalyst for giving. Some of you have never or not recently felt the experience of joyful generosity. And it's too good. It's too good to miss. Freely you have received. Freely give. You bow your heads in prayer with me. Freely you have received. Freely give. Our prayer partners are going to come up and be available to pray with you in just a few moments. But, you know, as you've heard this message this morning, I wonder how many of you are, are saying, Steve, I thank God that my giving to the Lord is joyful. It does come from a grateful heart, and I thank God for that. Would you raise your hands all around the room? My giving to God is a joyful thing. Amen, amen, many, many of you. Are there some of you, though, who would raise your hand and say, this is really an area I struggle with, Steve. Please pray for me. I struggle in this area. I struggle with giving or with giving joyfully or understanding what God wants from me. I, I struggle with it. Would you pray for me? Lift your hands, would you? Yeah. Yeah, quite a number of us. as is becoming our custom, our prayer partners are available to pray with you this morning about anything that you might need prayer for. If you're struggling in some area this morning, any area, if you're just struggling or if you're in the midst of a storm, I would urge you to come and let one of your brothers or sisters pray with you. If you need a breakthrough in your life these days, you just need a breakthrough from God. Come and be prayed with. Maybe you're here this morning and you're awakening to the fact that Jesus Christ needs to be your Savior. He died for you. He died for your sins. He paid the price. Maybe that's coming alive in you and you'd like some guidance on how, how that happens. Come. For any reason, if you sense the Spirit of God prompting you to seek prayer this morning, come while we worship. Lord God, it is so true that we have received freely from your hand. May we become a generous people, not motivated by law, but motivated by your grace to us. I thank you that grace and joy are related. May we experience that in great measure and give you praise for your goodness to us. We worship you now. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.